Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Mike Boris and welcome to Straight Talk with Hugh Van Kylenberg from The Resilience Project. Hugh Van Kylenberg, welcome to an episode of Straight Talk. Thanks for having me, Mark. It's a, it's a great pleasure. Sorry, I was just turning my heater off then. It's very cold in here. <laughs> that's because you're in Melbourne, aren't you? Uh, that's, that's exactly why it's cold, yeah. Is it cold down there? Well, I'd say today is the first day where there's some glimmer of hope um, that it's not going to be freezing. For <laughs> it's, it's, it, I mean, it's very cold, but it's not too bad. It has been a lot worse recently, so it's not too bad today. And it's been a bit frosty at those um, morning briefings from your premier every single day. I mean, how many weeks have you guys been locked down for? Well, I don't know about weeks, but I know we're up to 215 days total. Wow. This is your seventh lockdown? Yeah, seventh lockdown, 215, 215 days, and I've got two kids under the age of four, uh, wow. one of them who doesn't sleep. So um, the four-year-old um, terrorises us during the day and the one-year-old terrorises us at night. So uh, I said to my wife a couple of nights ago, I, I said, surely – it's at 3 o'clock in the morning. We hadn't been asleep yet. And I said, surely this is the hardest it'll ever be in our lives. Well, I'm, I'm hoping that's the case anyway. Well, as a father of four sons uh, um, who are all adults now, um, uh, can I tell you something? <laughs> no, I don't think I want to hear this. <laughs> <laughs> it can get worse um, as they get older. So bigger kids, bigger problems. Um, I, I guess what they do, kids, well, the kids jumping in bed in the morning at 2 a.m. or something, they all, someone wants to climb in bed with mum and dad. Yeah, the one-year-old, we, we, she wakes from 11 till 3 most nights and we can't get her back down again. So so I should have reframed that. From a sleep point of view, um, hopefully it, it won't get worse than this. I, I have no doubt as they get bigger, the problems get harder to, to manage and to, to, and, and to negotiate, especially you've got four boys, my goodness me. <laughs> i got a grandson too and uh, he's four this month. Pre-COVID, he used to come over and stay over if my son and his wife you know, anniversary or whatever, it had to be wedding, they go to something or other. And I, and the very first time I looked after George, you know, I ran him around all day during the day because he came, came to my place in the morning. I made him get re- really tired and I took him down the beach and he swam 
uh, and I put him in the surf, you know, that salt water, usually, I don't know what it is, it usually makes him tired and I gave him a really warm bath and I've, he ate a heap of food and about seven o'clock he clagged, he just passed out, like completely passed out and and he, I had him in the room next to me in a, like a cot type thing and um, it was all beautiful, he was a peaceful sleeper and then about 11 o'clock I decided to go to sleep and of course George woke up. Oh. And uh, and um, and that's party time. Like uh, I'm a pop's house. I want to party, um, and I'm up. And, totally, uh, totally. Like, and I was on my cat badge. Like I was like exhausted because I just worn him out, but I wore myself out too. And all I want to do is go to bed. <laughs> um, and uh, like I was up trying to entertain him. I tried to rock him off, but he just had just enough sleep to be sweet. And uh, so I put him into bed with me and put some pillows on one side, and I slept. I put myself on the other side. Because I was just worried he's going to get out or roll out or something. Because he couldn't even walk at that. Well, he's just walking, and uh, well, yeah, he fell asleep after about half an hour, which is cool. But you know, he'd lay in there, poke him in the eyes, poke him in the face, and all that sort of stuff. And I was just trying barely asleep. But then for the rest of the night, he was laying there asleep, perfect. He was happy, but he jigged around, moved around. Fuck, like I mean, I'm thinking, and I couldn't see because I was going to roll on him, and uh, he was upside down and like all over me, like, you know, hand in my face. So I, that was, I, I think I've done that like three times. I couldn't do it every night. I, so I pity you. And you, and, and you got COVID, you haven't got COVID, you got the COVID lockdowns um, and you got another child um, and you've probably been working from home. I, I have a permit to come home. into the studio. So, um, so my wife's been doing the heavy lifting really. I shouldn't complain too much. Um, but I sort of I leave the house and I as I leave I can see this look on her face of just like I wish I was you. Yeah, yeah, totally, <laughs> exactly right, exactly. Right. And, yeah. and she's still trying to work from home with the two kids, and so it's uh, it's a challenge. It's um, my gosh, but everyone's got their own stories of how hard it's been. And you know, here in Melbourne, it's funny this last lockdown. It's it's been you know last year was a bit novel, and it was it was a bit you know well I might try and learn to make sourdough, or I might try and get an exercise bike and see if I can get fit, or and then. By the end of last year, it was pretty tough, but there was hope, you know. It was like, oh, we'll get through this. We'll get to summer. It's going to be good. And it was. We got through it. And then we got plunged back into the lockdown in in um, April, a quick one. It was just this fear of surely not again. But then we got out of it. And then this July one that hit, that was bad. But then we got out for five days. But then we're back in. We've been ever since. And it's, and it's different now. It's, I was saying to mate the other night on the phone, every stage has, has been a different feeling. And the feeling right now, to be really honest and be very blunt, I don't know if I can swear on this. You can say whatever you like on my show. Okay, good. I just feel like everyone in Melbourne is fucked. That, that is my honest answer to it. When I chat to people, when I see people, you know, I, I got a coffee the other day um, up the road from a lovely girl who makes the coffees there and she said, how many cases today? Because I went in about 9 in the morning. I said, oh, we're up to 80. We'd gone from 40 and then I said, oh, I was 80 today. And as I said that, like as I said, it tears just started streaming down her face, and that's kind of the that's the point we're at now. I just like everyone's just fucked, like everyone's just broken, um, and we've been through different stages of hope and but now it's just it's grim. It's it is really grim. I mean, it's the first day of spring, um, and the weather's going to get warmer, and I think there's a little pep in people's steps because of that. And apparently, there's talk of modest easing of restrictions. You know, it's not about the case numbers anymore; it's more about vaccination rates. But generally, I'd say people in Melbourne are pretty broken um, from this from this experience. It's been brutal. But I mean, are you in Sydney, Mark? Am I, yeah, I'm in Sydney. Yeah. yeah. So, gosh, I mean, I don't need to tell I don't need to tell you what it's like. You totally understand. Yeah, we've been locked down since twenty uh, second of June or something. Well, I I have been because 
I actually came in contact with the, um, what they call the index case. So the oh. guy that first brought Delta to Sydney, the, the limo driver, yeah. um, uh, I was at um, just went to get a cup of coffee. The next day I got a phone, a, a text message to call New South Wales Health and then they advised me that according to my credit card, which they had accessed, um, that – I was in the cafe where the index person was in Sydney between 9.15 and 9.45 a.m. in the morning uh, when he was there. And uh, I don't remember seeing him. It was a really small cafe. I just got some takeaway coffee. But yeah. as a result of that, they locked me down. They quarantined me and I had to go get tests and all that stuff. So I actually been, I've actually been in lockdown quarantine or lockdown dash quarantine for two two weeks longer than uh, New South Wales has been in in uh, well Sydney Greater Sydney's been in lockdown so I mean I keep looking trying to consider my own resilience and uh, you know, resilience is a big deal at the moment it's something we're all searching for it's something we're all trying to understand something we probably never really thought about too much before in our past other than we heard our parents maybe talk about it or our grandparents talk about it in my case when I was a kid um, a young guy growing up in the west suburbs of Sydney. Um, uh, Irish mother, Greek father. Um, Sunday lunch was a big deal for us. Um, it was a family day. You know, we didn't have all the distractions that young people have today. But f- Sunday lunch was an important thing. It was a roast lunch. Um, generally speaking, we my in my household we had my mum's two sisters live with us, and my dad, two of my dad's youngest brothers. Dad's one of six boys, so two of my dad's youngest, uh, no, one younger, one older brother live with us. And then it was my brother and my sister and my, uh, as well. So there was a, it was a big household and uh, we would sit down at lunchtime on Sundays and, and other people would come sometimes. But and it was a big deal and I used to sit at that table. One of the things I remember that at lunch table often was someone would be – mum or someone would make a reference to somebody else as being tough as teak. And, um, and generally speaking, what they were talking about is they were really resilient, like country-style people, people on the, on the land or yeah. – you know, someone going through recessions and, uh, you know, they might have lost their job but the family was still stoic and there and um, and it was always this – the word resilience wasn't used but sort of that's what they were alluding to. Toughest take. I have to remember that. I love that. I really love that. Toughest take. It's a beauty. Well, and take, I might say just, by the way, take, for those people who haven't really thought it through and, and haven't come from that generation, teak was a, is a very important timber and it's put on the decks of boats um, right and, and and used to be put on houses because it's it's an incredible good hardwood that lasts forever. It doesn't matter what you throw at it. You can throw the surf, the sea, the salt, the air, um, and most other timbers will rot away or fall away or split. Teak lasts forever, and it is a, a, it traditionally has been used on the deck of boats. And Australia was one of the greatest, one of the biggest teak exporters in the world. And most of our teak doesn't exist anymore. We all our teak trees got felled and exported to England where of course they made boats and they sold them back to us but um so and and if you come from people up in Byron Bay and all those sorts of areas there's a lots of areas called McLeod Chute, Skinner Chute and what they were were areas which are up on the hill where the teak plantations were and they used to cut the teak down and send them down this the cliff which is a chute and then they used to haul them then out to the to the beach and they used to the ships used to come in and pick them up and take it off to England but all the teak has been cut out of uh, places like Byron Bay and all those surrounding areas and lots of other parts of Australia. But so teak is a is was a massive resource in Australia, 
was recognised as a resource in Australia, was exported overseas and um, was used to put on boats because it's such a tough thing. And this is why Australians used to have this saying, tough as teak. And, um, and so let's – I mean, they're little side stories, but I think those stories are important when it comes to us sort of understanding the historical alliance we've had with toughness and resilience. And it's an important alliance we've had through thousands of thousands of years. It's a lovely place to start. Like that's, you know – that's a local example, like a local saying, tough as teak. And, um, yeah, I, I really enjoy that. That's a great place to start, Mark. Thank you for that. Um, so my journey, I guess, if I was to – I mean, it's easy to sort of join the dots on your life looking back on it, I think, and work out, oh, yeah. that happened and that happened that happened. At the time, you're sort of pretending, you know, you sort of make it up as you go along but pretending you're in control. Um, I guess for me as a kid, unbelievably happy childhood. I'm the eldest of three kids, a very loving mum and dad. My dad's a dentist. He's a, a Sri Lankan immigrant. He, he came to Australia when he, was, when he was 12 years old on a boat. Uh, he wasn't allowed on the deck. I, I think it was like a two-month boat trip, but he wasn't allowed on the deck because they were worried with his skin colour. If he got too dark with the white Australia policy, he wouldn't be allowed in. Um, so he's, he, the rest of his family were a bit fairer than he was, but he's quite dark. So he was below deck for two months. The boat arrived in Melbourne. He thought it was Tassie because when he asked on the way, where are we going? Someone with big fingers pointed at the map and said, we're going there. And he thought they're pointing at Tassie. So he spent the first few months of his time in Melbourne thinking he was in Tassie <laughs> as this little Sri Lankan kid. I, I guess very, for me, I've, I've always been very connected to a very humble, hardworking, um, non-entitled, non-privileged you know, father, and I love those qualities. If you think about the qualities of someone who's not entitled, they're not privileged, um, they're, they're hardworking, they're modest, they're humble, all that kind of stuff. And I, uh, I'm very proud to be connected to that through my dad. Dad worked very, very hard. Um, he felt like he was brought to Australia. Um, well, the reason they were brought there was for, to give him, his family the best chance. So he worked very hard at school. Uh, apparently, he would study from four till 10 every single day uh, after school. His mum would bring him dinner. He wouldn't leave the dinner table because he felt like he had to make the best of his opportunity. His mum and dad had sacrificed their life in Sri Lanka to come to Australia. So he did really well at school, got into dentistry. I think in 40 years as a dentist, I think he missed one day sick. That was it. Um, he was just such a hardworking person. And uh, he worked his ass off to land his family smack bang in the middle of the privilege wheel, really, when I, when I think about my life. Send us to great schools. I had the happiest childhood. When I think of childhood, I think of playing cricket in the backyard with dad, the whole family. where there's huge gum trees. Speaking about trees, there's iconic Australian trees, there's gum trees that in my mind, they were kind of like the lights of the MCG. You know, that's, that's what I was imagining when I was in the backyard. And when I think of childhood, it was either taking sliding chess marks in the winter, pretending to be Jason Dunstall playing football, or I was, I was Steve Waugh in the backyard playing cricket. And that was my incredibly happy childhood. A swimming pool, you know, the sounds of summer, um, never hard for me to conjure them up. When my sister was 14 and I was 16, my little brother Josh was 11, um, she was diagnosed with um, anorexia nervosa and eating disorder. Now, back in the 90s, we weren't talking about mental health too much, really. I mean, I, mum and dad said to me, your sister's got a mental illness, and I had no idea what they were talking about. I was 16, never heard of it. And they said, she doesn't like the way that she looks, so she doesn't eat. I said, so if she eats food, she'll get better. And they said, well, yeah. And I remember thinking, it can't be that serious then. Like you hear about people with cancer and, you know, there's no cure a lot of the time. So in my head, I'm thinking... That, this can't be too serious. 
And after a while, I started to re- resent my little sister because I saw what this mental illness was doing to my mum and dad. It was, and to our family, we were just. I mean, I reckon if you, I reckon that most people can remember the times they saw their parents crying. It's a really unnerving, harrowing, um, disturb, almost disturbing experience. I felt a lot of people. I mean, my parents never really cried. I'm sure they did, but I never saw it. I think my dad cried when we put the dog down. Like my mum did when we put the dog down. So that was when I was ten. But other than that, I don't think I saw my parents cry. And then I remember going to see my sister in hospital when her first day in hospital. So the Austin Hospital here in Melbourne. Very, very hot day in February. And we got home from the hospital. I, my dad sort of left the dinner table very early and he went and just started cleaning up. And I, I noticed he hadn't finished his dinner and it was a bit strange. I looked across at him and he was, I'll never forget this figure of him hunched over the kitchen sink and he was crying doing the dishes. And it was at that moment I realised how serious this illness was. Even when my sister was in hospital, I was like, yeah, but if she eats food, she gets better. So I'm a bit confused by this whole thing. But when I saw Dad crying, I remember thinking, shit, this is really bad. And I remember looking at Mum and my little brother Josh and it sort of I was a bit slower to register what was going on, I guess. It taken me, maybe I was in denial, I don't know. But I remember thinking, fuck, we are not a happy family anymore. And it was a, a pretty devastating kind of moment or realisation. And at that point, I remember becoming fascinated with the question, well, what is it, what the, what is it that makes people happy? Like, what, like, and the reason was I didn't, I knew I couldn't fix my sister. I knew I couldn't, you know, I knew I couldn't, that was well beyond my, me as a 17, 16, 17 year old kid. But I, I wanted to know what I could do to help mum and dad to feel happy and my brother Josh to feel happy. And, and I had no idea. I had absolutely no idea. I, there were a few things I was doing instinctively that when I look back on it, actually, the Reason Resilience Project exists. Like I, I learned that mum and dad love stories. Like they love funny stories. And I, I knew if we sit down at dinner, I could tell really funny stories or really wildly embellished stories about my day and I could make them laugh. And if I did it, as soon as we sat down, I could do it before the argument started about food because there was always an argument about food, you know, every single night. These like extremely awful fights about food. Dad would never usually join in. Dad sort of had his head down looking very defeated, but mum and my sister would just go at it. And I, my resentment would build for my sister. But um yeah, so that was when I was sort of 16, 17, 18, that all happened. And I thought, fuck, what do you do to make people happy? I, I didn't know what I wanted to be until that point. Then I thought, I'll be a teacher. I'll go into teaching because then I could work with kids and help them not get a mental illness. <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing, Mark. Like I wasn't there going, I had no formula back then of like, this is how I stop it. And I remember going to my first school as a teacher going, right, how do I stop these kids getting a mental illness? You know, they were 10. And I had no idea what I was doing. Um, I just, yeah, I was, I, I loved teaching. I really loved it. But I remember back then, and a lot of people might relate to this, but I remember as a teacher thinking, this is good, but I reckon I've got a lot more to offer. I don't know what. Like, I have no idea what, but I reckon I've got, I reckon I could do something really big, but I have no idea what. And then I sort of fucked around for the next four, five, six, seven years as a teacher, this whole time thinking there's something bigger for me. I don't know what. And my partner at the time, my ex, my ex, um, well, my ex-fiance, she is, she was desperate to travel and I was saying, no, no, I've got to do, I've got to do something big. I don't know what it is. I've got to set up something. I don't, I don't know what. And she's saying, well, I need to travel. And, and um, I always deep down felt like I wasn't quite good enough for her. So I was like, okay, whatever you want to do, we'll do that. And so I went and traveled. And I remember the whole time going, I'm 28. Um, I've got no money to my name. Like I've all, all the savings I had as a teacher, you don't get paid much as a teacher. I remember my first full-time gig as a teacher. I was on $40,000 for the year. That was my first in 2000. Four, I think it was. And so you don't save much when you, I wanted to live in Richmond. So it cost a bit of money and, and I didn't, 
I remember all my savings went to this trip to India, and I'm like, what the fuck are we doing? Like, we're 28, we've got no money, and we're living in India. And then she said to me, we should do some volunteering. And I was like, fuck, not only do we not have money, we're now volunteering our expertise. <laughs> like, this is just so counterintuitive to me. But again, she wanted to do it, and I, I wasn't good at saying no to her. And so next thing I know, we're volunteering in the desert, in the Himalayan desert. In a, and I, they, they said to us, I was trying to get involved here and where we went because I was like, we can't, this is costing us money now. Like we, we want to save for a home surely and we've got zero and we're 28 years older. And my, my mates said, you know, they're getting these great jobs at the, one of the big four banks or their managers at different accounting firms and their physios. And I'm thinking, I've got no money and now I'm volunteering. You're thinking loser. Totally, totally. And I would yeah. pretend the whole time to my mates, I'm like, yeah, no, nah, this is really good. We're just, we're volunteering here. It's a good thing to do. But in my head, I'm like, uh, I haven't got a doll to my name and there's no, I don't have a, job like I left my job to go and do this so I was I was feeling I pretended I was fine but deep down I was feeling deeply insecure about where I was in the world like I was like oh, I'm going nowhere here so I said let's find a place that's gonna look after us at least so I did a bit of digging and found this village that said yeah you, you can live with the principal as long as you're here and you get three meals a day and I went oh you beauty here we go I'm on the way up here <laughs> so and I arrived in this village and I'll never forget the feeling of shock that I felt when I arrived no running water so we went water, you walk down to the river, half an hour, half an hour's walk. They, they had electricity, but they couldn't afford to have it switched on in the village. And there were no beds. Everyone sleeps on the floor. And no toilets, hole on the floor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, a, yeah, there's no toilets. There's like, there's a, I was thinking about this this morning, actually. It's funny you say this. You go onto the roof and there's a missing floorboard or like a missing, it's like a mud brick home. There's a missing mud brick there in the roof. And whatever you're going to do, go straight down into this hole and it's like this separate room that faces out away from the that's, – that's how you go to the toilet every morning, like through on the roof of this joint. You can see everyone else doing it on their roof. It's the weirdest thing. I remember the first time I went up there that I said to the principal, hey, he goes, here's the toilet. And I was like, oh, so sorry, so what do I, what do, I do? And he goes, oh, I'll show you. I was like, no, 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 don't, 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 don't show me. Just <laughs> explain to me what you do. Anyway, so that was me there and I'm going, oh, well, I've really hit rock bottom here. Like this, it doesn't get oh, – I felt so homesick. I was like, I just need to go home and earn some money. Anyway, my first day teaching in this school, and again, I'm sort of painting the picture because I think the path towards, I don't want to say success, but the path towards fulfillment or in whatever you want to do in your life is often it's not what you think it's going to be and often you feel like you're going backwards in order to go forwards. But my first day in the school, I'm sitting there teaching the grade threes. There's no resources. There's nothing. I'm sitting there in a room. Kids are sitting on a dirt floor. There's a blackboard, one piece of chalk. There's no dust and I couldn't get away the, the stains on the board. So I'm going, what on earth do I do here? 20 minutes into the class, I remember thinking to myself, there was a kid sitting in the front row. His name was Stunzen. I remember thinking to myself, never, never in my life have I ever seen joy like this before. This kid, the happiest person I've ever met. I was just giggling. I was like, this? I was looking at this, looking across the desert going, there is nothing here. How the fuck is this kid so happy? I don't know what is going on. I, the first week went like that. I, I was going to be there for a couple of nights. I forgot I wanted to go home early. I was so in love with this place. I was so in love with these people. I said to Angela, I said, I, I can't leave here. She said, no, neither can I. The reason I was thinking I can't leave was I couldn't stop thinking about Georgia, my sister. I was thinking, how is this possible? We grew up in a loving family, a nice home, went to very good schools. We had everything you ever needed to grow up in life. Yet my sister's in hospital with a mental illness, or she was back then. This kid, or all these kids I was meeting, no bed. They have two meals a day, most of them. It's rice, just rice, nothing else. Sleep on the floor. 
one pair of clothes. I've never seen joy like it in my entire life. And so long story short, Mark, I lived in the village for three and a half months. And in three and a half months, I, I just watched what those people did. I copied what they did. Profound imp- impact on my life. I've never felt happy. I came back to Australia. And I wanted to tell everyone about this stuff, but I knew I couldn't just turn up to schools. I wanted to tell schools. That's where I wanted to go and speak to at schools. But I knew I couldn't turn up to school and say, anyway, kid in India does it, you should do it, then you feel happy. So I went back to uni, did, did my postgrads. And again, that was a, another pretty big investment for me at the time. And you got no money to go back to uni. And I think my master's cost me, I think it was around $54,000 at the time. And I wanted to know, is there any evidence that these things actually work? Has anyone done the, not not questioning that they work for these people, but Australians are so skeptical. Like Australians are so skeptical of of people who stand up and say, here's a, here's an idea for you. They want to know. So I looked at the evidence. It turns out there's 40, 50 years of science and research screaming at us. If you want to feel happier, these things definitely help. So that was back in 2011. Um, and I thought, right, very ambitiously just quit. I just said, no, I'm not going to teach. I'm going to go and talk to schools about this stuff. And and again, I tell this story because I think people find it interesting who listen to you, Mark, and, and your fans. But um, I, deci- I decided, right, I'm going to – I didn't even call it starting a business. I, I just thought I'm going to go and start speaking at schools. And, and my school that I taught at, Rakeen, the school I went to, Rakeen, I went, oh, I'm on fire. I've got two schools already. When did these presentations, I thought they were great. And then I'd call the next school and they'd go, sorry, mate, who are you? And so I just did this talk at this school. They thought it was good. This school thought it was good. And they'd go, yeah, so the school that you went to and your school, anyone else? Oh, um, no, you'd be the first. They'd go, okay, good luck. Call us in a year when you've got some more runs on the board. No one wanted to hear from me. Like, no one wanted to hear. And I was just rejection after rejection after rejection. Again, I'm back to no money. Um, and I'm single at that point because I hadn't worked out with my ex. And, and I, thought, I thought I was a loser before. <laughs> I was at age 30. Uh, that was me just going, well, I remember my 30th. I had quite a few beers and, and I was pretending I was fine, pretending I was on this great journey, but I was, I've never been so flat. No one, I had this business that no one was interested in. And every single time I got the opportunity to speak, the feeling it gave me when I actually spoke to these kids about this stuff and seeing the impact it had on them, it was enough to propel me for the next month to go, just keep going. My housemates lent me money because they are beautiful people who had faith in what I was doing. Um, well, not a lot, not a lot, but it was enough to help me pay rent and, and get by. And then eventually... It started to gain traction, and 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 I am in the most amazing position now, where we have a team of twenty two, I think it is, um, which is still a smallish business, but there's twenty two of us, and it's uh, we've got our reach is what makes me most proud, though. I think we've got now um, three hundred and forty thousand kids every day around Australia do our curriculum, so it's a year long curriculum, and we have most of the elite sporting clubs around Australia doing our program, and uh, five hundred and eighty businesses this year doing our wellbeing program. So yeah, it's a it's a, we've come a long way, but it's it's funny, you know. Even just I've just loved even telling that story, just a reminder to myself that like the hard work that goes into it, you know. Like, the, I mean, no one understands it more than you. But the amount of rejections, the amount of times you think I'm not, what am I doing? And you question yourself. And and um, yeah, I I had an email the other day from a, a, a lady up in Northern Territory, an Indigenous woman who just wanted to tell me um, the impact the programs had on her two kids who are, who are quite lost in their teens but it's it's you know stuff like that you just go like all the hard work like all the self-doubt everything it's all kind of worth it you know when you I'm not saying I've arrived here it is but it's just it's you know it's a great journey to be on that's for sure you said something very interesting all the hard work etc is worth it I often get asked this question when you get confronted with a problem in your business whatever it might be um, and you're looking at the answer to how do I fix this? It's a it's a how question, and an, an, the answer is a how answer. And often you just don't know how you're going to fix it. You just don't know the answer. You, there is no answer. That is one answer. And you and it takes time to work out how. 
we always need to buy time in life for whatever it is we're doing, especially if we're trying to work out a solution, solve something that takes time. And mathematically, you know, it's time and energy to come up with a solution, but you've got to own that time. You've got to somehow build that time into your life. And, um, and, and, and if you're a person who doesn't understand why you're doing something, you might just say, oh, fuck it, I give up. Um, would it be fair to say the thing that gives you, let's call it the resilience or the energy or the strength of character or the, the ability to continue on is why you do it? Oh, it's, it's, it's only been articulated to me a couple of years ago, a few years ago, and I look back again, I look back on my life and realise that I, that's the reason I was able to keep going when I had so many knockbacks and so many points where it was just too hard and it was just, and I couldn't find a solution. But when, you know, for, for like my purpose, if I can articulate my purpose, which, which I've done a couple of years ago, my purpose is, um, is to help spread joy. That's, that's, that's what, and I, and I do it really to try and help make sure other families don't go through what we went through. The purpose of the Resilience Project is to, to, is to inspire happiness and to change lives. So whichever one of those three you kind of want to take, it gives you great energy to work through the issues you're having when you know that's what sits at the other side, I guess, which is exactly what, what you're saying there. It's funny, I was just as you were saying that, I was thinking about when problems arise, when I'm confronted by one, if it's an issue with staff or it's an issue with a client or if it's an issue with a, one of our programs or whatever it is, it's funny when someone calls me to talk about it, I'm not good at coming up with solutions and I'm in a meeting, I find it hard. For me, what I've found so often is I love running. I'm obsessed with running. And so often when I run, the answer appears to me. Like it's kind of like when, you're, when I'm away from the problem and I've had myself, my, my subconscious has gone to work on it and I just start running and I'm, and I'm in what um, psychologists call flow, which is the state where you're just so immersed in an activity that your prefrontal cortex, which is where judgment and self-criticism, all that stuff, that has a rest and it stops for a minute. It stops talking to you. And when that stops, that's when I find those solutions just appear. Like I don't, I'm not sitting down going, right, what are my solutions here? It's when I'm doing something that I truly love and I'm not focusing on work that these solutions sort of will appear. But it's, it's, it's exactly like what you said. It's, it's it, like I'm motivated to find an answer because whatever the problem is, it's stopping me to achieve my purpose, which is to help people to feel happier. I mean, that's pretty much it, to help people to feel happier is what I, and it's a lovely thing to be able to do. So I strongly encourage people to sit down and have a think about what their, what their purpose is, for sure. We'll go to the break and we're going to come straight back. So I'm back with you when we've been talking about his journey or his experience with, we call it happiness, et cetera. And, um, and Hugh has a business called The Resilience Project. And he has a, a start off in a, in a very humble way. Um, and we were talking about how to solve problems in business, probably in life generally, um, and how the concept of why you're in business in the first place, your purpose, et cetera actually buys that little bit of time you need so you don't give up and you just keep going in there. And that, that to some extent, that not giving up, and we used to talk to it right at the beginning, you know, that toughest teak sort of um, attitude Australians tend to have, or at least my experience in relation to Australians tend to have, is because largely they remember why they're doing something in the first place. So remembering why you do something buys you the time, gives you that so-called resilience or makes you pretty tough. You know, you, you mentioned you described your purpose as bringing a little bit of happiness or 
more, or a sense of happiness and more joy to people's lives, um, if that's a fair description. And, and someone might say, oh, well, yeah, well, that's a pretty lofty um, purpose that Hugh's got. He's lucky. Yeah, he can fall back on that. But actually, it's a very simple purpose. Uh, it's not lofty. Joy and happiness is a pretty simple thing. It's just like um, food and water is a pretty simple thing that we need in our lives too. Um, safety and security is a very simple thing we need in our life too. Community is a very, you know, the ability to socialize and communicate to my community is a very simple thing in my life. And But because you talked about a little kid, I can't remember his name now, but a little kid sitting in class, yeah. yeah, with the desert out the front, with fuck all in their life relative to what we have. But to them, it's all about everything to them is very basic and fundamental, very simple. And because they don't have this complicated shit going on in life, like swimming pools and football fields and people feeling it, mental illness and all those other opportunities to get complex, they just concentrate on the simple stuff like joy and happiness and friendship and etc. cetera. Um, what do you think about us? Can we dumb, should we be dumbing down our lives more like and just looking at what is the fundamentals of what we're doing? It's it's hard for us to do that with the way the world's set up here. The, I mean, what what they did so well in this community was was gratitude. They practiced gratitude every day. They were so good at paying attention to what they had. This kid Stunzen, he used to point out to me often his shoes. He had one pair of shoes, and he'd grown out of them two years before. He couldn't afford another pair of shoes, so he got a pair of scissors, cut the end of his shoes off. His toes are sticking this far outside the end of his shoes. Didn't bother him. Didn't sir. Have a look. He's saying I got shoes on my feet. Pumped. Absolutely wrapped. Now, we don't know. I don't think we need to dumb down. You know, we don't. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70 percent of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. To buy less shoes or how many shoes you've got is fine, but we've got to be better at paying attention to what we got because we're not good at that in Australia. It, it's um, Many of us live off a, a model of happiness called the if, and, and I will get back to purpose in a second, but... I think it's an important thing to remember. So many of us live off this model of happiness called the if and then model of happiness, which is if I buy this car, then I'll feel happy. Or if I buy this house in this suburb, well, then I'll feel happy. If I get this promotion, then I'll feel happy. Now, there's nothing wrong with wanting those things. They're all perfectly normal things and healthy things to aspire towards, but you can't pin your happiness to them. You can't say, if it happens, then I'll feel happy because you buy a nice new car, feels good. Six months later, you pull up with the lights and someone's in a nicer car next to you and you think, oh, fuck, actually, if I drive that car, then I'll feel happy. So then all of a sudden, you know, you need something else. We constantly want external things to bring joy to our lives. But joy comes from within. That's what these kids in India did so well, right? It was just they stopped and paid attention to what they had. They, were so, they had a day in the, in the school year where they celebrate having a river. Like they go to the river, spend a the whole day at the river, and the whole point is, 
How lucky are we to have, have water? Now, that'd be like us celebrating having taps. It sounds stupid, but like we are so lucky to have water that comes out of our walls. I tried to explain it to these kids. It was the most baffling thing. that They didn't understand it. I actually couldn't explain water coming out of the wall to them. And I, and I felt bad, and I was like, oh, I feel guilty. I'm telling them. But I didn't need to feel bad. They're like, yeah, we got a river. Yeah, we got a river where water comes from. In fact, they celebrate it. They go there and celebrate the fact they have water. It's an interesting thing you should say that. It's really it's funny. It just reminded me of something my dad was telling me on the weekend. My dad um, lived in the in the mountains in Greece uh, as a kid and um, before he came to Australia. And he lived there during World War II when the Germans were occupying Greece. And then he lived there during the period of the uh, – the, there was a, um, a civil war in Greece straight after World War II, which is the reason why he came to Australia. But um, And he told me that he, today he's lucky enough to live in Mossman. Um, he's got a great house in Mossman, et cetera, and he – he worked his ass off to get there. But anyway, he said to me that, uh, I said, how are you going, Dad? Like he's 87. I said, how are you going, Dad? Like he's locked down. My, my sister's the nominated visitor, whatever. I live too far away, et cetera. He said, I'm all right. He said, it's a beautiful sunny day. It's a great day. He said, uh, just did the washing. And I said, uh, I, I bet you often wonder about washing. He said, and we started talking about when he was in Greece, he didn't have shoes. He, li- he lived in the mountains where it snowed. In fact, there's a ski resort there today. Really? Um, he had no shoes. Until he's eleven years of age. Oh my gosh! Um, and and he never had any running water, let alone hot hot water. He had to go down to the well down the road, and there was a horse down there, and he used to have to lead the horse around. He used to draw the water out, and Dad would bring the water up. And he's got one of f- six boys. Um, he used to bring the water up and for the for the family. There was no toilet, no dunny, um, no hot water. Um, in the in the winter there was no shoes and there was no. But like he was always, he's always happy. My old man's always happy. He's been happy his whole life. I never seen my dad sad, except when for mum died. But I mean, I never seen my dad unhappy with his life. And I think you're probably right. Um, and I always look my old man and think, God, you're a resilient bastard. Because I think about how he lived his life. You know, like uh, everything. He walked everywhere. He, he didn't get educated. He lived when he was eleven, ten or eleven. He used to live. He had a farm and. He used to live on the farm by himself. Literally, him and his younger brother lived there by themselves for three or four months, looking after the watermelons because gypsies and stuff like that used to come and steal stuff. So he was, and I and I don't know if he's that resilient, except other than maybe you're you're, you're giving me some insight. Maybe he's not as resilient so much. He just it's a simple life, and uh, he looks at everything very simply. And he feels like he said to me, "My life today, Mark, it's so good." He said, "I got running water, I got toilets, I got." Hot weather, I, got, I can wash my clothes in the washing machine, put them on the line. I walk up the road to get no food. I can have any food I want. He's not rich. I mean, he's got a good house, but he's, he's got no money. I mean, uh, but he can live off 30 bucks a week, my old man, because everything's relative. You know what I mean? If that, is that what you're saying? Like gratitude is a, a relativity exercise? Oh, I mean, the science behind gratitude is, is it's life-changing. Like it, it transforms every situation you're in. Like, you know, so think of the negativity bias, which says we're seven times more likely to notice a negative. That's the way our brains work. Someone who's grateful, someone who's truly grateful is actually four or five times more likely to notice a positive. We are surrounded by good stuff. It's everywhere. It is everywhere, but we're not good at paying attention to it in Australia. We kind of, we focus on the stuff we don't have. We focus on the stuff that doesn't work. We get sucked into the, you know, and we've been challenged by that. Like COVID has shown a light on that in a big way. Like, you know, we're getting, constantly getting stuff taken away from us. You can't do this, can't do that. The more you focus on the stuff you can't do, there's still a lot of stuff we can do. And I know I'm not saying 
thank God for COVID. I'm not saying, so come on, everyone, just start. For, I, but if you start to change your, your approach to life and it, oh, I can still go and get my coffee in the morning. The sun still comes up in the morning. The weather's getting better. You know, focus on the stuff, that the good stuff. We're surrounded by it. It's everywhere. There's so much good stuff happening. My sister-in-law was telling me she went, she was going for a walk the other day. She walked past an old guy. She said we have been in his 90s. And he was, we walked past her and he had a mask on. And then he, as he walked past, he held up a sign that just said, I'm smiling. <laughs> and she said it was the most beautiful. She said it was the most beautiful connection I had with this man. There is good stuff going on, but we're not paying attention to it at the moment. How do we do that? I mean, how, well, yeah, how, great, great what question. What would you say to us about We've got to practice. I mean, I mean, I often think to myself, people say to me, you're an idiot waking up 4.30 every day. It doesn't matter which day it is, seven days a week. And I keep talking about routine structure, but like I actually like waking up. And, you know, and it just sounds really ridiculous. Mate, I'd rather wake up than not wake. And I'm, I'm actually happy that I woke up this morning. Like I'm not dead. And uh, it's a, you know it's a lot shittier on the other side. Perfect, perfect example. I'd love to know more about your routine, by the way. Yeah, well, that, that my routine is is just a structure that it's it's is literally a routine, so I don't have to think about anything. So yeah, and but I get up every day four thirty. It doesn't matter. I'm on, I'm a, I'm awake. Sometimes I might lay around for five or ten minutes thinking, or just I, sometimes I do a bit of breathing, etc. But I'm actually just grateful to wake up. I actually think to myself because one day I'm not going to wake up. Yeah, and like I'm 65, and you know, let's say the average male lives to 82. That doesn't give me too many more years. Um, that's 17 more years left, and 17 that's gold. So 17 years of gold, and every single day I wake up, I'm happy, and I wake up healthy. I, I wake up, I'm breathing. I I can move. I can. My legs are okay. My arms are okay. I'm good shape. And my mother died from motor neuron disease, and uh, you know, I every day I think to myself, well, I don't have that, and how lucky am I? I can't imagine what it was like for her to wake up every day with MMD thinking that sooner or later she's going to be completely useless and but her brain is going to be great but the rest of the body won't work and so i i look back at those events and think well it's not a big deal to get up at 4 30 and by the way i'm gonna i can go to the gym i can go have a workout or i can't get to the gym but i can go and have a workout yeah yeah well that's because my body i don't have any injuries and even if i did i do have a few but like it doesn't stop me from doing something so i i i operate that way and i'm not some like uh i mean i'm not like I'm not as educated or in this area as you, but it's just a simple way of thinking. And I often think it back to my dad. Um, and I, he's a great inspiration for me in terms of keeping it simple. And you're right, gratitude um, is really important. But what would you say to people who are sitting around um, getting beaten up or beating themselves up with the news feed, being addicted to 11 a.m. Um, you know, premier calls? Yeah. Uh, then, then looking through everything on Instagram, which is just repeating the same shit over and over again. And feel like my life is fucked. Um, yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, which is what you felt at one stage. You said, "Yeah, totally." I've got a great I'm story fucked. on that actually. So, so very quickly to practice. If you want to be good at something in life, you have to practice it. Simple as that. And mental health and gratitude, that kind of stuff. It's no different, right? So to practice gratitude, a few things you can do every night before you go to bed in a journal, in a notepad, on your iPad, however you want to do it. You write down three things that went well for you during the day. That's it. Not three extraordinary things. Three things that went well this morning. I had a nice coffee. I got to go for a run. Had a nice text message from my sister, whatever it is. Someone smiled at me. Someone smiled at me. Exactly. Just the little things, right? You do that every single day for 21 days. The neuroscience says that you actually start to, your brain starts to shift and you create new um, pathways. And those neural pathways are looking out for the good stuff. So you're actually changing your brain after three weeks. If I didn't do that, but I did the opposite, I looked at all the shit news all the time. Does that create bad neural pathways? Um, that's a good question. So if we are, I think what it does when we're constantly watching 
the negative news. And and I mean, there's a there's an index which measures how negative the language is in the positive to negative ratio. And there's a I, it's been happening ever since the 80s. And I believe right now it's the highest it's ever been since I've been measuring how negative the language is. So what it does is it removes hope and optimism from your life. And hope and optimism are both very well-known components of people who are mentally healthy and mentally well. It's a very big part of being a mentally healthy person is optimism and hope. And the, if you watch the news right now, you're just stripped of it. You're completely stripped of optimism and hope. I'm not trained in that area, so but but that's my first response to that. Is it has, and that's what it's done to me when I watch the news too much. So another way to practice gratitude is what you were doing just before, Mark. It's like you answer the question: What's next time you're feeling down? Answer the question: What's not happening to me right now? Like what's not happening? I'm not in India where there's 350,000 positive cases and someone dies every minute from COVID. You know, I'm not in a war-torn country. You know, I'm not in Afghanistan. I'm not. You start answering what's not happening to you and gives you great perspective on on the world. So that's how you practice gratitude on the whole experience that I've been through. And I think it's the, I think this is the most powerful thing you can do with the pandemic right now. And it's taken me a year and a half to do it. As someone who knows how important it is, it's taken me a year or more than that now. What is it? Like it's 20, 20 months of COVID, whatever it is, but it's taken me a long time to do it. I was in the car the other day and I heard that there were 78 cases in Melbourne, the, extended, the lockdown would be extended. And I was so flat. And then I thought, hang on a minute, what am I doing? This is If I'm living my life like this every single day at nine o'clock in the morning when the numbers come out, I'm going to be upset. What a terrible way to start my day. What am I doing? And then I thought to myself, what's the problem here? And I thought, for some reason, the word surrender came into my head. I was like, I've got to surrender to this. Now, the definition of surrender is when you stop fighting. And when I thought about that, I thought, yeah, I'm actually in a fight every single morning with myself. Like, I'm, like I've got to stop. I'm worrying about something I cannot control. Not, I'm not trying to control. I'm worrying about case numbers every single day. I cannot control it. I'm worrying about the lockdown. I cannot control it. I, what I realized in that moment, this is two weeks ago, right? Two and a half weeks ago, I had my, probably my lowest moment with this whole pandemic. Um, with a, a just, I just, when I realized how bad it was in Melbourne and how we were in locked, I was so flat. And now today I speak to you, I'm totally fine. Why? Because I decided in that moment to accept it, to accept this has happened. This is the way the world is now. This is we're living in a global pandemic. I've got to stop worrying about something I kind of. I've accepted it. I've let go. Like I've totally let go of that anxiety of like fuck. What are the case numbers tomorrow? I've accepted. This is the world we live in, and every single day the case numbers come out. It doesn't bother me. We had a really good day the other day. Got back to forty something, and Penny, my wife, said, "Oh, that's amazing," and I actually realized that I didn't feel like it was amazing. It didn't bother me. Like it didn't. What the, it didn't bother me at all. And I realized. I've totally accepted it. Now, the practical side of how do you actually accept it is really hard. And by the way, I'm someone who's, I live in a nice house and I haven't lost my job and I haven't lost a loved one. So it is easier for me to accept it, absolutely. I interviewed a lady the other day whose son was assaulted in the city 15 years ago and he very nearly died. Now he's, he can't move, he can't speak. Um, It's 15 years ago, very much in like a vegetative state. He can't communicate. And I said to her, how are you at the moment? She said, well, it's taken me a while, but I've learned to accept that this is James's life now. I've accepted our life. And the moment I accepted it, things got a lot easier for me. It's the power of acceptance. It's, um, I, think it's, I think it is the most powerful thing we can do in the midst of to, to surrender to it. It's much bigger than us. This is the way the world is. Let go of control. Let go of the worry and just accept what's happening in the world. There are some people who would say, um, no, there's principles at stake here. Hmm and freedoms, all sorts of things at stake as principles. I'll never give up on the principles. 
if I accept them or surrender, it's like a weakness. It's considered a weakness. Yeah. It's a difficult one for some people. For some people. I mean, because, because I, I, well, I'm actually out there saying, listen, there's new rules out there. I, this is what I accept. There's new rules out there. The momentum has created new rules. New rules are you can't open a cafe. You won't be able to open a cafe or restaurant or whatever it is. You won't be able to go into one unless you're double vaccinated. There's just new rules. I didn't make the rules. Someone else made the rules. Um, I can't change the rules personally at, at one at, at a level of one person. Never, I'm never going to change the rules. So I'm saying accept them and just get on with your life. And if you're running a business, build your business around those rules or within those rules. Because if that's if you're in business for you, you're in business to do operate with the rules. Just like you got to pay tax. I mean, no one's everyone thinks tax sucks. I mean, no one thinks tax is fair. I mean, why should I pay tax? But we've all accepted it. You got to pay tax. You got to collect the GST. You got to pay superannuation employees. You have got to give them annual leave. You have got to give them sick leave. You have got to give them blah blah blah. Um, you know, you can't speak to them this way. You can't speak to them that way. You can't ask them their age when you're interviewing them for a job. You can't ask them if they're male or female. We accept all that other stuff, but for some reason we have this like massive drama right now around the COVID rules because they're all new rules. Um, and I'm just saying, and what would you say to business people, if they accept the rules, maybe they're going to have less agitation and perhaps become a bit more resilient and, and have a little bit more, they're going to have a bit more happiness in life because if you, the moment you're fighting, you're never happy. Your sense is not happiness when you're fighting because your body goes in a fight mode. You know, you want to karate chop someone, you know. Totally. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's, that's, again, I say this from someone whose, whose business hasn't been challenged by COVID. I mean, it has, it has been impacted in a big way, actually, having said that, but we're still here. So, um, so the accepting things is easier to me. I think one of the things you can do is you can write down a list of the stuff that's keeping you up at night. So as a business owner, what are the things that are, that are worrying me? What are the, I mean, we all know that feeling of lying in bed and your brain just starts ticking. It's just fizzing with all issues in the business. You can write a list down of all the things that are worrying you, all the things that are stressing you, all the cause, all the things that are causing you to panic a little bit. And then what you do with a pen is circle the things that you can control. What are the things that I genuinely have control over in this moment right now? And then put a line things that you through the things that you cannot control. And then I think your job is to go, well, what are the circle things here? And what am I going to try and what 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 can I do to control those things? The other one is you've got to get them the fuck out of your psychology as soon as possible because they become distractions because they, they, they distract you from the things that you can control. Um, now, as far as principles, if it's like freedom, if you're thinking, no, no, I can control um, if I protest, if I write this letter, then it might have an impact. Well, if you think you can, if you genuinely in your heart of hearts thinks that you can control it and it's, gonna, it's not a distraction from the things you should be focusing on, the real things that you have a big impact on, um, and if it's a principal thing, well, I, I, I'm, I'm who am I to say don't, don't fight for those things. You know, that's it's important to stick up for your principles, but just be realistic with with what you can genuinely impact, and you can genuinely control. That's that's very interesting because it, you got to remember you're in you're in business. I mean that that's what you're doing. That's your thing. You're in business. You have got your family to look after, and you, but you're in business because that's your that's your that's your game. And the reason, one of the reasons you're in business is you've got to make money to support your family and get all those. Up. But you're not in business because that's all you do. You want to be in business because that's what you do in order to get other things. But if you start distracting yourself with all these matters of principle around which will actually affect the way you do your business, your effectiveness in relation to your business, and I'm not talking about complying. I'm not saying compliance for compliance sake. 
But if you start uh, getting distracted with, you know, matters of principle around the new set of rules, you won't be in business. You won't be able to do the thing you uh, think is your purpose. You won't be able to do business. You won't be able to look after your family. You won't be able to do anything. And, um, and all you'll do is you'll grind yourself into the ground. You become useless to everybody. And by the way, you won't be able to count your little wins like you, I say, I call them little wins, but you know, those little things that you did well or those things that made you happy for the day. And people will pick up on that too. Like, you know, like if I'm walking around a real grumpy bastard, it's less likely someone's going to smile at me or say hello than if I'm walking around at least neutral. <laughs> and, you know, and I think it's, I think that's really important. I mean, it's funny, you, you, if we don't mind, if I just interlude for a second for a little story about Sri Lanka, which when I was a kid, it was called Ceylon. Ceylon, yeah, um, yeah. Um, people were Ceylonese um, and you, we knew very few of them in Australia. Yeah. Many, many years ago, um, I went to Sri Lanka and um, I, I arrived at Colombo and then I, I took a, a, a horrific terrorising drive down to um, a place called Gaul, yes. uh, <laughs> which is on the coast. And um, I was with my best mate, at the, well, a really great mate of mine. We were going there to look at real estate, et cetera. We just, I don't know what we're doing, look at real estate in Sri Lanka, but we just thought it'd be an interesting thing to do. So totally. we went to Gaul and um, and Gaul was a, is a pretty big town. Um, a lot of people live in Sri Lanka. And um, we stayed at a place called the Dutch House. And the Dutch House, it was called the Dutch House because it was owned, originally built and owned by the Dutch East Indies Company. And the Dutch East Indies Company was the big spice trade and they used to use – Sri Lanka was one of the stops. The ships would have to stop at Sri Lanka before they went around um, to, to get to back to Europe and England with all the spices and things they collected out of um, the, the Far East. And uh, the Dutch East Indies House was owned by the original captain or whatever he was of the Dutch East Indies Company. And we it's a beautiful house and we're the only two people staying there. So, you know, there's like ten rooms – the only two, there were only two rooms occupied was by me and my mate Bill. And um, when we arrived there, um, there was a line of people, like staff, all wearing beautiful white uniforms, very dark skin, not very tall, very dark skin, these brilliant white smiles. Like the thing, all, the, all I can remember is these beautiful white teeth of all these staff. And they were there to greet us as we walked in. And uh, they were unbelievable. We stayed there for about a week or something. It was just it was so fantastic. You know, they looked after us like incredibly. And um, anyway, on the day we leave, um, they're all lined up again to say goodbye. And um, we say goodbye to everybody. And uh, as we said goodbye to each person, um, you, you know, I wasn't sure. I followed Bill. He's much older than me. I just followed Bill. And Bill so he gave everyone a little hug. So I thought, oh, should I give him a hug? I give the blokes a handshake. And I got right to the end and there was a little girl there who was used to come in every day. And, uh, and but she was only like maybe, I don't know, 15, 15 or 16, but she was really tiny. Yeah. She had this massive white smile. <laughs> she had dark, really dark skin, but a really white smile, right? Anyway, I used to see her every day and every day I used to catch her looking at me and uh, and I'd look at her and she'd smile at me. Anyway, she put something into my hand on this day. We're leaving and I thought, oh, I'm not going to look at it because I don't want to get in trouble. So I put it in my pocket. Anyway, what I, I pulled it out of my pocket when I was out of sight and she said, oh, my name's blah, blah. And she said, uh, I would like to become your pen friend. <laughs> really? Yeah. She wanted to me. She wanted someone to write to, and uh, and uh, and I. When I got back to Australia, I, I rang the manager because I wanted to make sure it was appropriate and all that sort of stuff. I didn't know any better, and and the manager told me that she lived in Colombo, and every day she was one of a whole heap of girls, and in Sri Lanka at that time, we're talking in nineteen, we're talking about two thousand and four, two thousand and five, I think it was. In Sri Lanka during that period, 
Um, it wasn't good to have daughters because if you had a daughter, um, if she was to be married, you, the parents, have to give her, give her husband a dowry, which was a bit of land. And uh, poor, poor families couldn't marry their daughters off. So a lot of the daughters end up going into prostitution and or other things just because they, it's just, they were never going to get married. And uh, this girl chose, her, their family chose for her not to do that. But each day she caught the bus from Colombo, a four-hour trip down a goal to work in this Dutch house as a, I don't know, as a housekeeper style person at the lowest rank in the, in the business, the youngest and lowest, and then took the bus every day, every day back at four or four, four hours. And she did this six days a week. For, for, and the money she earned, the little money she earned, um, she shared with her family. And she had lots of sisters in a poor family. Extraordinary. And I started corresponding to her. So I started writing letters and write letters and, you know, and, I, and I, it's contextual but sort of marries into what our conversation is, maybe why your dad was so humble and yet grateful. Yeah. She was so happy. She was so happy. Fuck me, like unbelievably happy and, uh, and, for, and actually lit up my day. And she used to write to me on my birthday and I'd write to her on her birthday. And she started sending me photographs when she got married. She got married eventually and she had kids and she sent me photos of her kids and, um, yeah, and she wrote to me all the time. And, you know, I, I used to send her a hundred bucks here and there, but, yeah. but it, it just, but she was just extraordinarily grateful and happy. And it's, it's funny, you know, like you're, you're, you're really touching a lot of, um, memories of mine yeah. about my dad and various other things that tell me right now, cause this morning I woke up pretty shitty with all this lockdown stuff, you know, so it was the first of spring and I'm been locked down for like 10 weeks or something, 13 weeks, whatever it is. Um, You've you've actually brought back a spark into my life for gratefulness. Oh, you were it. talking about gratefulness for people, and I, I'm I'm actually like it's it's a brilliant thing to be doing the resilience project. I really haven't sort of asked you to articulate what the resilience project actually is. So, how do you roll out your project or the business called the Resilience Project? Yeah, it's we're doing a lot at the moment. Um, it started off as presentations in schools. Uh, now it's a program that for it's for Kinder to Year Twelves. Now it's an extensive extensive program in the school. Like it's curriculum, it's teacher training, parent training, student um, sessions, pro, wellbeing profiles, all that kind of stuff. Um, multiple touch points throughout the year. Uh, but we got, I think it's 450 schools and 250 kinders around Australia doing the program every single day. So it kicks yeah. off with the with the student presentations, which are a digital format now, so anyone can watch them anywhere around Australia. This is how our business has evolved. If if COVID happened four years ago, we would have been fucked, like because it was just us doing face to face presentations. But luckily, with the other half of Hamish and Andy, uh, Tim Bartley and Ryan Shelton, we designed. We put our presentations into a video type format, like TV shows. So, and it sits on a platform, so schools can just click on that. They can watch the videos, and then the curriculum is getting the kids to practice every day: gratitude, empathy, which is when you feel what someone else feels and you, you act on that. You know, kind of like meeting a girl in Sri Lanka and going, "Well, this means a lot to her to be pen pal, so I will, I will honour that. I will that kind of teaching kids that that kind of stuff counts. Mindfulness, which is where you're just we're teaching the kids to be wherever they are, not be distracted by what happened a week ago or what's coming up just to be present. Uh, we teach them emotional literacy as well. So the, we teach the teachers how to teach it essentially and they've got a textbook that they work from or a student journal they work from and it gets them, it, it lasts for the whole year. So that's the school program. But the corporate program is is equally, I'm equally as excited about it. It's a series of presentations and journals that that um, for adults in corporate world that they can then use 
for their business and for their staff and for their teams. We, we did a program for Coles last year. We trained all 120,000 of their staff, which is an unbelievable opportunity. Uh, and then there's the sporting clubs. You know, I've, I've, that, that's a bit different. We, we, we used to do all these sporting clubs. I just work with Port Adelaide now and Martin, the other presenter, works with Hawthorne Football Club. But uh, we used to, we used to, we did all the NRL teams a couple of years ago. Worked with all of them. It's funny. I, I started it off as a resilience project because the word resilience was the buzzword in schools when I was starting yep. this, and every every teacher was googling resilience, and so that's why I called it that. It's it's evolved now so much that it's it's teaching. I mean, it's teaching people how to cope in challenging times. Yes, which is the resilient part, but it's also teaching people the the power of vulnerability the power of connection, you know, letting go of ego, letting go of expectation, letting go of all this stuff in order to to just have the confidence to show up as yourself, to, to, to really be yourself, own who you are as a person, um, enjoy the present moment, enjoy the good stuff as it happens and and hopefully live a more fulfilled and joyful life. That That's kind of what we're about now. But we'll always, it's our bread and butter resilience, so we'll always cover it. But I think there's more to life than just coping, you know, like that. that's one part, it's coping, but then it's how do you flourish as well? It's funny, you know, we're doing a YouTube series called Survive and Thrive and I, I keep saying, like in times of this, it's about coping, surviving, but it's also really important when things get back to sort of normal or whatever, how do I thrive, um, thrive in business? And you're saying how do we, it's more than just coping, it's about how do I enjoy my life actually because in other words, what's the point of me being here if I'm not enjoying my life? Yeah, well, that's way, it. If you're asking that question, you've got to go back a couple of steps and say how can I cope with whatever it is that's pissing me off or making me unhappy? I've got to learn how to cope with that. And you're saying it's, it's about going back to fundamentals again, principles, simple principles. How, how would I be if I was in Afghanistan right now and getting stuck at the airport and um, being a, an American, an ex-American resident or a, a American resident or a, a, a collaborator with Americans stuck now in Afghanistan getting hunted down by the Taliban? I mean, I'm not that's dramatic, but I'm just saying that's re- in a relative sense. Funnily enough, I get that thrown at me a bit. No, not, not so much the Afghanistan, but... You know, uh, one of the things I used to say was to have a think what's not happening to me now. Well, I said it before, what's not happening to me now? And I said once, as an example, I said, oh, I'm not sitting in a doctor's surgery finding out one of my kids is really sick. And this lady came to me afterwards and she said, what if I am? She goes, what if that was me last week? She goes, that was me last week. I was sitting and you're saying, well, at least I'm that. Well, that's me. What am I meant to do then? Um, what is the answer to that? Well, I felt really bad. I felt quite teary when she said it because, you know, it's my worst fucking nightmare. And I, I, this is what I thought. I just thought life is really hard. Like life is extremely hard at certain points. And I said, that's all I've got for you right now. Life's, life's extremely hard. And I have never been through that. And I have never been in a situation where I found myself, you know, trying to flee a country for my life. You know, I saw images the other day of, of, of babies arriving in Canada and the US that had been put on a plane from Afghanistan without their parents. I'm going, mate. So, I, I I think what we're suggesting, our model of well-being and joy, is very much contextualised to Western culture or Australian. For the you know, I look at what's happening in Afghanistan, and I you know, I, I wouldn't for a million dollars sit down to someone and say, well, come on, let's be grateful, let's be empathetic, let's be mindful, because yeah. I I fully accept that things like that are, are horrific, and horrific things happen in the world, and it's it's tragic, and it's. You know, Mark, I don't have an answer to that. I don't know how to answer that. I just don't. But I guess as a benchmark, it's all right for us to say, well, that's something I'm glad is not happening to me. Yeah, I, I think so. I, I think only because, not to say 
God, thank God it's Emma, not me. It's just to give yourself perspective. When you're upset about maybe a provider hasn't delivered on time or they haven't met a deadline, it fucks you up because you've been behind on another project. I mean, we're not going to be worried about that in five days' time, you know, we'll, we, and sometimes we forget that. We carry on like it is the end of the world when, in actual fact, things are happening around the world that are like the end of the world, like Afghanistan. So it's not to say, thank God, it's someone else, not me. It's just to say a bit of perspective right now. I probably need a, I need a bit of a reality check, I think. I think what you're doing is I mean, timing is about is always about timing, but yeah, you would have known these sorts of things going to happen. But no, all of a sudden, it's become dare I use the word trendy to be thinking about in business, like businesses like mine, to be thinking about how resilient is everybody, how they're feeling, um, and how should I talk to them? I'm not a trained person in that regard. Um, I know how I deal with the things myself, but how do I talk to them? To be frank with you, I actually think it's better to get experts in in these environments. Um, people who are like yourself, who have, you have training aids, you have teaching aids, um, and you have proven track record systems that work for other organisations. Um, so, I think from a business point of view, I mean, I love the school thing. Um, I think the resilience project, for, in terms of all its assets, is timely. It's something we never really talked about. Resilience is um, one of those things is, is a word that gets overused, to be frank with you, a lot lately. But people haven't really dug behind it. I am actually have gratitude for the fact that you're here today talking to my audience about this concept. At least they might pause to think about things that you're talking about. And that may be of a big advantage to them, a big benefit to them, particularly those who are really suffering based on what they think are principles, as I said, the principles of freedom and things like that. Um, because relative freedom, freedom is a relative thing. I mean, you can still go down to Woolworths and buy what you want. You can still turn the TV and watch what you want, not in China. You can still go to Google and Google what you want. You can smoke a cigarette if you feel like it. I mean, you can pretty much do whatever you want, within, but within some limits at the moment. Hopefully those limits get reduced, but limits at the moment. So, Hugh, I really appreciate this discussion on Straight Talk. And Straight Talk's about talking about things that other people don't really necessarily want to talk about or don't get really addressed. And this is a tricky one, people's state of mind right now especially. It's a tricky one, so I really appreciate it. Thanks, by the way, sharing your personal story particularly about your sister. Uh, that's, that's, that's important to us. No, thanks so much for having me, Mark. It's a, it really is a pleasure. I, I, I don't get the opportunity to speak about this kind of stuff enough, the business side of things. So I've really enjoyed it um, and I'm a huge fan. So it means a lot to be asked. So thank you. Thanks very much. All the best to you. Cheers, mate. See you soon. Thanks for listening to another episode of Straight Talk with Mark Boris. Audio and production is by Jessica Smalley. Production assistance, Jonathan Leondis. This is a mentored podcast. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.